Hey everybody, it's episode 5, but it's our first episode after having launched the Patreon that we're recording. And I just want to say cheers to you. Just really thanks everyone. Wonderful Patreon listeners. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 5 of the Mix 6. I'm Caleb. I'm Spencer. And if you're just coming on board, this is the podcast where we drink six beers and have six random bar conversations. That is, if you back the Patreon. That's right. Uh, five, if you're not in for last call. A, a less complete bar conversation at that point. <laughs> Indeed. And we rate our beers using a shifting five-point rating system. So what's our rating system this week, Spence? Well, as you know, Caleb, and, and all of you probably know at this point, hopefully, uh, a one on our rating system is terrible. It's a beer we're not drinking again, whereas a five is a beer that changes our lives. And so today, we've reached out to a good friend of ours, I would have to say, of all the people we know, that the Kevin Ellis is maybe top of the list across the board. And it just so happens that Kevin uh, runs another wildly successful podcast at Lords of the Storm where they discuss Heroes of the Storm, the Blizzard game. So Kevin, at Multizord on Twitter, and I have long had a conversation uh, about the best Mario games. And in honor of the recent release of Super Mario Run, we thought this would be a really fitting beer rating system for episode one on Mixed 12 Monday, two back-to-back episodes. Going to get weird. So for today, our rating system is as follows. If it's a one, it's Yoshi's Cookie. Um, what was the original Candy Crush? It was for the Nintendo Entertainment System, the original Nintendo, and it was just cookies that you had to match up as Yoshi or Mario. Uh, Nintendo, you're better than that. You're way, way better than that. You fed us so many games for years that you didn't think we could handle because they were so difficult to the Japanese folks, and yeah. then you gave us Yoshi's Cookie as like a and, and here's for you, America. And okay. like I'm counting the Wii U. You're still better than that. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> All right. So two is Mario is missing. A three, and now we're getting into the better versions of these games. A three is Super Mario RPG for the Super Nintendo, which is perfect, right? Because it's a totally playable game. It's absolutely fun. It's not going to change your life, but you're happy to have it. A four, and this is where Kevin and I are a little bit different. A four is a Super Mario 64 for the N64. Really changed the way that you could play Mario games. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, really viscerally getting frustrated at that game, but also not wanting to put it down, which is about what a four beer should be for you. As we know from previous episodes, you can speed run that game. And if it's a four, you're probably speed running that beer. That's right. That's right. Th- this is where things get sideways really quickly. Uh, and thanks to the 64, you could get things sideways. <laughs> uh, and then a five, this is a beer that changes your life as this was a game that changed my life. Super Mario World for the Super Nintendo. I don't know if you really push me to think of another greatest video game of all time. I don't think I could do it. It might be my favorite video game I've ever played. It's a museum piece. It is a museum piece. It absolutely is. As is a five. And we know this because we've sampled 24 beers now across four episodes. And we've only had two fives. Yes. The math is not good on that. I don't know what that math is, but it doesn't seem good. Yeah. So speaking of our rating system then, what are you drinking today? I am drinking, uh, this came from a lovely listener, Andrew Baswell, and Patreon backer. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is from Anthem Brewing out of Oklahoma, uh, the Ogletoberfest, uh, Vienna-style lager. Uh, This is a solid Super Mario 64. Wow, starting with a four. It's not the greatest thing I've ever had, but I could drink a whole lot of these, and I could drink them, like, at any season. Yeah. And almost with any food. It's It's a... Workmanlike beverage. It's it's there for you when you need it. Before we too drop too far into our actual topics today, are, are beers a seasonal thing for you? Like, will you drink any beer anytime? Yes, I will. But I'll recognize that I'm weird. Sure. Like, if it's the middle of the summer and I'm like, I have a Guinness. Right. I know not everybody's into that. Like, I know, like, you just got hot chocolate before you ran a race. Like, it's, it seems a little odd to most people. Right. But well, the mistake there is running the race. Yeah. So yeah. Not, That's not why I choose not to do that. Amen. But uh, I, I can recognize it. it. It doesn't matter to me. Makes complete sense. So we're drinking. And first thing we're going to talk about is, Caleb? We are going to talk about uh, dissecting our fun because uh, we are board game enthusiasts. Enthusiasts. And this is a game you turned me on to mm-hmm. called Tokaido. Yeah. And there's a lot of cool things going on in this game. Uh, and I, we'll get to them and the basic theme. Yeah. But uh, the sort of thesis statement uh, for this game is Tokaido does initiative in a game, 
cooler than I've ever seen in any other board game. Absolutely the coolest uh, initiative. I have ever. never thought so hard about initiative order as I have in Tokaido. And it may be the primary mechanic. I know there's other stuff you need to do for win conditions. It's got some wonderful asymmetrical design with the characters. You just got the expansion pack, yeah, even yeah. more asymmetry. Holler, Merry That's Christmas really hard to, to design around, mm-hmm. but uh, that initiative mechanic just sticks with you. It's it's beautiful, uh, as is the game. So first let me say this about Takaido, and for those of you listening at home, it's T-O-K-A-I-D-O, uh, because that could get weird. Also, you can find it on our website. Um, the thing about Takaido is just it's absolutely beautiful to look at. Like, it is a pretty game. The board is a watercolor dream of these like incredibly vibrant colors. Um, it feels like an acid trip that you would have while you were having a really good time, but in the most beautiful way. So the trick to Takedo for me, and let me talk a little bit about and the, and the theme. You're on a pilgrimage to yes, Edo. So you're traveling the East Sea Road. Yeah. You're moving along the East Sea Road, which is apparently like one of the in most beautiful in Japan. Yeah, the, apparently one of the most beautiful scenic roads in Japan. And my understanding is, and producer Ross, you may know better than I do on this. I believe it's the road from Tokyo to Kyoto. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, uh, and if it's not, I'm very sorry to our Japanese <laughs> listeners. Okay. And the goal of the game as you move along the road is to create the most robust, memorable experience for yourself by stopping to eat at fine dining establishments and trying different foods, by buying souvenirs or trinkets, um, by meeting interesting people, by taking these like scenic panoramic pictures and compiling these pictures over time. Or having religious experiences. Yeah, stopping at these incredibly like ornate immaculate <clears throat> temples to pray and you know like really find yourself, which is I'm sure what one would do on such a journey. Yeah, you see this game board, you think pre game board first, and then you think race. It's not a race at all. Absolutely not. It's about having the most fulfilling journey, which That's is right. a wonderful theme. Yeah, it is a it is a calm. So it's game. a competitive fun game. Like it's literally like <laughs> I had more. I had my, yeah. I changed my life more than you. That's yeah, right. right. Exactly. Yeah, I took more pictures faster. <clears throat> yeah, that's exactly what it is. You you are racing to be the better travel guide writer in yeah. some ways. Um, but none of it about it. No, nothing about it feels rushed. It feels calm and relaxed because you're stopping to do these things. So let's talk a little bit then about the mechanic and what leads to this incredibly interesting um, uh, initiative innovation that, that you've pointed out. So the board expands horizontally, and most boards do, left to right. Um, but players are stuck in phases or rounds with one another in between ends. And so all of you can only interact with spaces moving from left to right in a designated area bookended by ends, where all of you will eventually end up, and everyone has to get to that end before you can move on to the next round before ending up at another end. And in between those ends, then, are these different types of experience or moments. Uh, you can eat, you can buy souvenirs, you can take pictures, you can go to a, a spring. And they're all off the main road. They're all and off the main road. And depending how far off it is, it'll take a certain number of players. Right, right. So you could have two people do the same thing. And then other places you can only have one person do that thing before it's capped on right. that journey. That's right. And you and I cannot occupy the same space unless that space <clears throat> makes two spaces available for both of us, for example, to yeah. take a picture or go visit a spot or a, a, a hot spring. What's interesting, though, is that there is no predetermined turn order. Rather, the person who is uh, on the leftmost side of the map or what would be the back of the pack, who's taking the most time, as it were, to take pictures and visit things, No matter what's happening, the person who is in the back always gets to act first. So let's say there are four spaces between you and me, and I move up one space to make some other memorable experience. I get to go again until I close that gap or choose to close close that gap between you and me. So turn order is based on position in experience, not on who goes first or who got to places first. And it's absolutely fascinating. From your perspective, what does that kind of initiative change do to the dynamics of the game? Well, we've played it like three times now. Yeah. I still don't think I've played it well. Like, I want to play Tokaido again because, like, the strategy is in there. Because you talk about wanting to commit to a win condition fast. Yeah. Uh, like we talked about before, Tokaido is it. Because you got to look ahead at your end-to-end segment of road, right? And you got to be like, okay, I need this and this, and you really have to engineer your spaces. Like, do I jump early and try and get it now? Do I go slow, stay as slow as possible, right? And try and go first and jump it, and risk someone getting there before me? Because you can move any number of spaces you want to. Absolutely, you could move from in to other in if you wanted to. Uh, just in one move. Right. So it's just the 
sort of intellectual gamemanship you have to do to like think about how other people are going to move you, what wind conditions are they going for, right. how are they similar to me. It's really intense and very simple. And it's to the point where we haven't even used the asymmetrical player powers yet. Nope. Because it's like complex enough to think of the initiative order in terms of strategizing how you're going to do it yeah. that we haven't even entered into like that this character can violate this rule right. or get this much extra or that kind of stuff. We've been so stuck on the just figuring out how to create a sustainable strategy that can be used more than once from game to game that, yeah, you're right, we haven't even looked at the individual characters that yield specific you know rules violating powers because I wouldn't even know where to start on yeah. some of that stuff. You know, you get more money, you get more experiences, et cetera. Sure, that's great. I'm still not sure what I'm doing. You know, to your point about committing to a win condition early, one thing I really like about this game is that because anyone on the board can take multiple turns in a row, uh, depending on how quickly they want to play that round or phase, you can commit to a win condition, but if you're unwilling to abandon that win condition early, you're screwed. I mean, yeah. you're absolutely screwed. Because everything counts for points. That's right. Even partial stuff. Yeah, 100%. And so... You know, if in the third round or third phase of the journey, if I see that you and I are both going for the same win condition, create the X panorama fastest to get the bonus points for having done that. The problem is the moment I see you doing that and I realize because of initiative order just for this round and where I am, I'm not going to be able to catch you. If I don't dynamically pivot and try to make up those points somewhere else in that yeah. same round, I've taken a whole, a whole phase of the game off. And so it forces you to be proactively looking at what other people are also trying to do while you're trying to build your own experience. And and then this is where I get back to the physical design of the game. Because every time we've played, I've gone for Panorama. And I don't think it's because I thought it was the best play. I think it's because I wanted to see those pretty pictures. Yeah. And the Skinner box of like, ooh, new, new segment of the pretty picture that you right. build is way more satisfying. Even though I could have been going for like a monetary win or a best food win or a religious win. And, uh, yeah, that's very interesting to me that, like, I'm not sure I've ever strategized correctly or even close to well in that game yet. Right. Because that initiative order threw me as so original. And there's so many different win conditions. And everything looks so pretty and cool that I want to see it so much that I am sort of falling into the theme of the game in a meta level. Absolutely. And there are so many win conditions. And it's weird that, you know, I've probably played it five or six times total, obviously three or four with you now. It's weird to me that given the vast amount of win conditions, because you're absolutely right. You can, you know, your win condition can be, you know, most varied food experience, most varied retail experience, have, having met the most people. It's weird to me that given that I've only ever played it with three or four people at a time and I've played it a number of times people keep competing for the same win conditions <laughs> rather than looking beyond the 10 yeah. or 15 other options that are available to them. I don't them. think anybody's ever gone for a food win. No. That while we've played. But it's totally on the table. It's yeah, it's no totally doable. Yeah, it's absolutely available to you. It just seems like such a far-out thing. I think that maybe you know one of the things as I'm thinking through this is the game is just so dynamically different in, in how it makes you operate from your standard board game that the initiative order is astounding because it breaks all those rules, and yet I'm still stuck in traditional board game um, themes, which is move across the board. Uh, and get the most of a type of thing. And I'm not really ready to think about, oh my god, there are a lot of fucking types of things here to get. So I get stuck in that. So Tokaido might be a good game for uh, if you have a person in your group that's a hardcore board gamer. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe make them the newborn fawn, you know, stuttery legs. They don't know how to operate on right. this one. Because it is a different strategy experience that we haven't figured out yet. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get there playing it enough, but, like, that initiative order really throws you for a loop. It does. And it's a completely different way to think about how to win the game. Yeah, for those people that feel like they've mastered kind of your entry-level, uh, you know, uh, more experienced games, your Settlers of Catans, your Carcassons, and stuff like that, Takedo really pushes the envelope to a new level because new level, now you're thinking about the meta of... The, the movement of the game to begin with. And I think those people are also like pushing towards legacy games, like making the experience longer right. and longer and longer and less accessible. When I think Tokaido can really do that, it can really throw you off your game and sort of uh, confuse your strategy in a much shorter amount of time. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. And with that, I'm going to grab a beer and we're on to segment two. So, as you know, I've been looking for gozas, the, sar the, the tarts, the sours. 
Um, this is a Sierra Nevada Otra Vez. I probably butchered that, so you're welcome to whatever that means and to Sierra Nevada Brewing. <laughs> uh, it's a Goza-style ale. It's an ale brewed with cactus and grapefruit. i got to be completely honest with you, man. This is a Super Mario 64 for me. This is a hard four. And I think if it were on draft and it were a little bit warmer out, not negative dick degrees, it would probably be a Super Mario world for me. Probably a hard five. Uh, this is a really, really good beer. Can't recommend it enough if you're really trying to find something light, a little crisp, with that tart effect to it. Uh, you seemed like you were going to go five initially, and I respect you taking it down a little bit to a four. Yeah. Because I, w- I don't want to become like the IGN of beer. Nah, it feels excessive. Like, it poisoned me, and I had to get an organ removed, 9.9. Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, that's good. Uh, anyway, um, what we're going to talk about here yeah. is that uh, it was suggested to me that as one uh, wanting in the field of sports, mm-hmm. that you try to explain to me the college football playoff system. And I see that you're up on a TED stage right now, and you've got a PowerPoint and multiple whiteboards, and just laser pointers coming out of you like a disco ball. So I, I, I imagine it's a complex uh, system to explain to me. It, it is a Gordian knot of a Game stu- of Thrones genealogy chart. It, <laughs> it is the weirdest. So it's actually the the weirdest system, and it's been two systems in the last twenty years. Um, so this is Sports Splainer. Uh, we tried this once before. We discussed the win probabilities of the Kansas City Chiefs and Denver Broncos in a specific instance. Yes. We got some feedback on that that people said, well, other than having to hear you talk, that was kind of interesting. So, <laughs> so we're going to roll those dice again. So we're going to talk about the college football playoffs and the weirdness that is. Um, in some ways, this is a really germane conversation for both of you because both of you write games, play games, build games where you have to think about how to compare seemingly unlike variables for the purposes of moving the ball forward, pun intended. Yeah. So a conversation around the college football playoffs is in some ways really a conversation about how do you figure out what's good and not good in a simulated environment, which is something you guys do all the time. All right. So here's what I want to do. First, I want to outline for you the purpose of the college football playoff. And the purpose of the college football playoff, which is actually only only in its third year technically, uh, it started two years ago, the 2014 season. So the college football playoff, as we know it, the purpose is to take the top four teams in college football with a big asterisk around what does it mean to be one of the four best teams in is college football. Is this by division? Or Nope. Oh, like all colleges. All colleges. All colleges. If you play in uh, a defined subset of college football. So, for example, there's the – So like the college from community – the human beings team isn't going to. The come human in. beings is not going to make it. You, right. Yeah, you have to participate in the in, in a specific subset of the college football world. What would functionally be the D one, right? The NCAA Division one world, and no bowl subsets under that. So Northwest Missouri State University, for example. Has Can we just point out that I pointed out as my one college reference a show by Dan Harmon? That's right. Okay. Yeah. So we all know where I'm standing. Yeah. On this. Right. How many? How many are in Division One? Uh, so I think there are a hundred, and I'm I could be way wrong here. I, I heard an interview with Steve Spurrier the other day, the, the the head football coach who was at Florida for a number of years in South Carolina. I think Spurrier said that there were like 181 colleges who would functionally fit into this bucket of being able to play for this type of thing. I could be wrong. It could be 121, and there's a second level below that. So, so three digits, though. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. At least three digits. Um, but but those then get segmented into Division Two, II, Division Three, and then you play for championships in those buckets. So we're talking about the big bucket here, the, the the ones that you would watch on Saturday on CBS and ABC, and they might actually be interesting to a large subset of the. So population. you basically have to be undefeated to just get into. Ah, uh, you would think. Okay, we're going to get into that. God. Okay, so the goal of the college football playoff, as it currently exists, is to take the top four teams in the country, have those teams play each other in two semifinal games, and then the winner of those two games play each other in the college football national championship. All right, sounds easy enough, but it's not. And this new system, which has been around in its third year now, has come under as much criticism or fire this year as its predecessor, the BCS, which we're going to spend a few minutes talking about in only three years. Okay, so here's the debacle. The debacle is how do you determine the top four teams, right? I mean, that seems to be the tough question, especially if you know you've got an easy top one. For example, Alabama, for like the last decade, has comfortably been the best team in college football. Not a question. And they were undefeated this year. No issues. They were going to make it in. What gets weird is really what happens at that two, three, four, and then who's the first person left out at that five level. Um, but but there's kind of a, a story which gets us to this story. So from 1998 to 2013, uh, to determine the best 
teams in college football, we used a separate system. We called it the BCS or the Bowl Championship Series. And the Bowl Championship Series was used uh, to determine participants in the five major bowl games. You know, there's like that whole bowl week now. Orange Bowl. Bowl. Rose Bowl. Rose Bowl. Bowl. Orange Bowl. Sugar Bowl. Tostitos Fiesta Bowl. That's a real thing. Wait, Uh, wait. That's the whole... I'm not fucking lying, okay? (laughs) So the goal was to determine the 10 teams that would participate in those five bowls and then kind of like haphazardly rank all the other teams that would play in all of those other bowls, largely which are just based on sponsorships, right? Yeah. Um, And then in theory, one of those five bowl games that would rotate around, it would be considered the national championship game. So the BCS uh, was largely hated by a majority of the country. And so this is why we've done away with the BCS and moved on to the college football playoff. Here's why the BCS was hated. So first, the BCS rankings were based on a combination of polls and computer metrics, including the Associated Press poll. The Associated Press ranks teams once a week. So wait, they voted for it like the MTV Music Awards? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they weren't the only people voting for it. So the so, so college teams were voted off the island. You know? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Or, <laughs> voted, right, or right. voted onto the island, you yeah. know, if the island was National Championship Island. So the Associated Press poll, the coaches poll, and then, to make things more difficult, the BCS added an element of computer modeling uh, that used advanced statistics to determine based on a variety of variables, like strength of schedule, for example. So this is like an episode of Deadliest Warrior at this point. Like, we, we threw it to the computer. Right, Deadliest Math Spartan Genius Warrior. would be... Yeah. It's Moneyball. Zulu yeah. Warrior. Yeah. yeah. So seriously, uh, if at some point you're just like really feeling down about yourself and you don't have anything else to do, read the Wikipedia entries on the difficulties of calculating the rankings for the BCS National Championship. It is like one – they were bringing in advanced statisticians. Uh, there's a little line which suggests that they had to build mathematical models by some of the most famous mathematicians in the world to even get like hand grenade close to what was a good way of rendering good football team by way of a computer. <laughs> Uh, needless to say, this this didn't really New head work. of playoffs, John Nash. Right, yeah. yeah. That's exactly what it was. So so people didn't like this, and there are a couple of reasons people didn't like it. At, at, at the core of this is the undefeated team problem. So the BCS um, starts giving value and weight to head-to-head wins, opponents played, strength of schedule, etc. What ends up happening in the last six seasons of the BCS, there are more teams who go undefeated and are not allowed to play for a BCS championship then there are teams who win BCS championships that are also undefeated. So after a while, people are like, no, that's not – I don't really know how wins and losses work, but I don't think it's that way. Uh, and so after years and so years – So there's like five teams that weren't undefeated – that were undefeated and won a championship. Yeah, so – And there's like 26 teams that were undefeated and didn't even get a chance in the playoffs. That's right. It's, uh, it's like the Boise State problem. So years ago – Boise State, who is probably most famous for having a blue football field. If you travel to their stadium, you play on a blue football field. And I think there's probably some ethics violation there, but no one seems to care. Um, Wait, what? Yeah. No, it looks like the world's largest vat of Kool-Aid spilled, and people yeah. are like, no, no, fuck it. No, you know? no I want to know why it's an vi- ethics violation. Well, just seems, are they in the pocket of big blue? It just No, it just seems weird to me like that you would be trained all of your life to play on a green football field, and then you'd show up one day and the field would be blue. Like, that just seems like pulling the blue rug out from under someone. I don't know. It's always bothered me. It's I think that was the Blood Bowl level. Yeah. I think I played the blue stadium. Yeah, exactly. Blood Bowl, right? yeah. It's like a setting on NFL Blitz. So yeah. the Boise State oh, was probably X. What was that? Uh, uh, the XFL? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was probably that. Was that a Trump thing? No, Trump was the... That was a Vince McMahon That thing. was a Vince McMahon That was funded by the oh, WWE. God. You know, as a lifelong W... What, what was then WWF and WCW fan, yeah. I really wanted to get into the XFL. Apparently more than everyone else in the country did. So, <laughs> so anyways, people don't like this. Uh, it doesn't work. There's a whole lot of hullabaloo around whether or not the BCS is getting right. And if... You know, the problem with the computer is the computer can't pass the, the, the heralded... It cannot use the eye test. So, like, sometimes you just see a team and you know they're great because of your eyes. Get it? Which seems a little ocular-centric now that I say it. Yeah. Um, so, so they do away with the system. Two years ago, they introduced the college football playoff. Four-team format, two semifinals, resulting national championship game. And they say the way they're going to solve the computer problem is by making a selection committee. A 13-member selection committee. So let me tell you who's on the good selection committee. The, good thing the NCAA has never been political or corrupt before. Oh, oh what? What could go wrong? Speaking of political and corrupt, here's who's on the committee. It's a 13-member committee made up of former coaches, current athletic directors, two former reporters, and Condoleezza fucking <laughs> Three war criminals, yeah. a pedophile. Condi uh, is on the selection committee. 
<laughs> so here's what the selection committee focuses on. Strength of schedule. So in other words, the teams that you've played, how good were they? Yeah. So if you beat a team that was 2-0 and and they ended up being, you know, 2-10, uh, and 10, the win doesn't look as good 12 games down the road. Conference championships. Did you win a conference championship in one of the major Power 5 conferences, right? The Big 10, the Pac-12, the Big 12, the SEC, and the ACC. Uh, what's your overall team record? Obviously, because if you go undefeated, there's something to be said for that. And then head-to-head results. Did you play somebody who was also really good? And if you did, did you beat them? All right. Now, here's the problem. Uh, This was supposed to be a correction to the computer missing things. And yet we're three years in. And this year, the committee has come under a lot of fire. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you two hypothetical teams, Team A and Team B. And I'm going to give you Team A stats and Team B stats. And you tell me if you were on the committee, who would you put in the college football playoff? I, I get that, but like I'm already like having trouble with this because like in any situation where the computer can't do it, my first answer to fix it is not get Condi Rice. Yeah, well, hey man, mm-hmm. and that's why you'll never <laughs> to be, be an honest, elected official. Like I would rather have Condoleezza Rice doing this than anything else. Totally like, fair. <laughs> right. I mean, it's fair. Right. It's like in terms of least amount of damage. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. a way of not firing someone, but firing them. Like I really appreciate everything you've done. Re- also, re- reassigned you to Juneau, Alaska. <laughs> I've, I've promoted you to go meet in Grapevine, Texas, which is where they meet up to ten times a year. <laughs> Where the hell is Grapevine? So Grapevine is actually, uh, it might be where uh, Jerry Jones' like massive cowboy stadium is. Now, oh, that, yeah. That's in Arlington. Okay. Grapevine is just on the other side. I know this because I spend a lot of time there. It's, it's a suburb Texas of Texas is just football stadiums and parking lots to football stadiums. Right. And now conversations you, you about You cross football. the blacktop on one and just go into another. <laughs> all right, so Team A, Team B, you've got to tell me who you'd put in the playoff. All right, so Team right. A. Team A has a better overall record than Team B. They're 11-1 and one on the year. Team A has a better strength of schedule, which means they've played some better opponents. Team A is slightly better against teams that are ranked in the top 25 and teams that are above 500 win win percentage. Is that a factor? Yes. How did Team A do in the conference? No conference championship. Okay. Team B, worse overall record, they're 11-2, so they lost one more game than Team A did. Okay. Okay. They have a slightly worse strength of schedule. Actually, I think it's kind of a significant one. They have a slightly worse record against top 25 teams and teams above 500 only slightly worse though they have a head-to-head win over team a and they won team a's conference championship who do you put in the college football playoff oh god well it has to be a right because they won out of three out of no four. i i vote team b because i'm a contrarian well, I mean, I bet it, I bet it's team I bet it's team B. But if you're going by your own segment, like they just won conference, if you have four metrics, team A won three out of the four metrics, so team A goes in. Team A goes in. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. yeah, team A goes in. Team A was Ohio State. Ohio State didn't even play for the conference championship. Team B was Penn State. Penn State beat Ohio State late in the year, kind of a major upset game, and Ohio State didn't have a chance to answer back in a conference championship game, so they they moved down from the two spot to the three spot. You heard it here first. I'm as good as Condi Rice at football. Caleb Stokes yeah. for the college football playoff. I'm doing a Heisman right now. Hashtag Stokes <laughs> for the playoff. Um, and so, so what's ends up what, what what has ended up happening is now uh, th- there's this mad debate over well, what good is a conference championship? What good is a head-to-head win if you've put a team who clearly lost in both of those categories in over a team who won in both those categories, and you've just made other things count? So the college football playoff, for all that it's attempted to do, uh, has has probably made things more difficult. And now there's someone to actually blame. Uh, her name's Condoleezza Rice. You can probably still write to her at a very public address. <laughs> uh, for, for what it's worth, a lot of people have suggested that if you moved it from four teams to eight teams in the college football playoff, now you could have the winner of all five power conferences. So your five best teams from each conference get in, and then three at-large bids for teams that were clearly the best team but did not win a conference championship, and it might be a solve. All right. Well, I'm perplexed. Okay. I am actually kind of surprised at how my Game of Thrones quote was so uh, accurate. It was unbelievably accurate. Yeah. <laughs> um, and now that you're staring at me like something's going on I need more beer. Head, get another beer. Dear Mr. Stokes, I see that you've you've gotten a new beer, and it is? I am drinking the Courtship Cranberry Ale by uh, Public House Brewing Company out of mm-hmm. St. James, Missouri. Holla! Uh, local. So, it pains me to say this. Uh, it's a two, because while Mario is missing, the cranberry is also missing. 
Uh, Can we get some just, applause like on the track for that? That was excellent. It's just yeah. not here. Uh, it is a. It's not bad in any way. There's no aftertaste. It's sort of sort of there. Yeah, but you know, unlike Mario, unlike yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm going to mix it up a little bit here. I want to throw the introduction to the segment over to producer Ross, producer who Ross. often likes to torture me with media. You keep inviting me to your house. I do. So you, uh, and uh, it beats grading. Yeah. Uh, and uh, one of the things he's tortured me with is a reality show uh, that Spencer's always watched. So we thought we talked about it in Binge Binger. So what are we going to talk about, producer Ross? We're going to be talking about The Profit. And this is The Profit as in with making money, uh, but, you know, it, right. it's uh, grammatically incorrect, but whatever. Uh, it is uh, a reality show that is on CNBC. Uh, so you know it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Home of great television. <laughs> yeah. It's I like forget. Spike, but more intense. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. I didn't even know that was possible. So uh, <laughs> it stars this uh, very rich man named Marcus Lebon, uh who is not a billionaire, but he's worth like hundreds of millions of dollars. And he goes around every episode. They, all these businesses around the country, like submit, like, please put me on your show. And then because they're floundering and they need money. And so Marcus goes there. He's like, well, okay, show me your business. And then he chooses to invest. Sometimes he doesn't, uh, but most of the time he does. And then he says, I will be in charge. I will tell you what to do to make your business to make money. Cause I want to make money too. And every single episode I've seen so far, uh, I've mostly seen ones from the new season, season four, uh, has been like, all right, here's my business, and I'm doing these incredibly stupid things. And then Mark is, well, have you considered not doing the stupid thing? He's like, well, I really want to do the stupid thing. I don't I don't understand that yeah. concept. Uh, the shit show of a premise. It's like, well, I'm a taxidermi- taxidermist, but I don't like being around animals. So yeah. I've never taxidermied anything. Yeah. Yeah. That was literally one episode where it's like, I made this. It's like Starbucks, but for iced tea. And I don't like tea myself. <laughs> and this, it's called tea to go. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because it, yeah. it has to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're not fans of it. Get it out of here. <laughs> uh, so I have a unique relationship in this show that, like, as a reality show where you're, like, literally wanting an angel investor to come in. And save your ass because you're in deep, deep debt. Um, yeah. When he comes in and dumps $400,000 on you out of nowhere, you're going to do whatever the fuck he says. And if that includes like pretending to be a complete incompetent idiot on camera, you do that. Like, like you want me to punch my wife? I mean, I'll do it. Like, right. honey, you can take this. It's good. Like, it, you do that on camera just for the drama. It's the Jerry Springer problem. I know it's not real at all. And yet, and yet... Knowing that this is probably a complete fabrication where people are just debasing themselves for money. I so badly want to believe these people are actually that stupid. And I want, like, the narrative arc to be, stop doing that stupid thing. And they keep doing the stupid things. And I don't know what that says about me or humanity. I, see, I'm a sucker for all of these. Because this is this is a big bucket of shows now. So it's not just The Profit. It's also Bar Rescue and Kitchen Nightmares and Hotel Hell. And the list goes on. Because I watch a lot of trashy reality television. We've talked about this. I, I think what I like about this one is he's not nearly as mean as any of those guys. He's, he's not as a, mean. Yeah, he's quite a bit more professional. <laughs> right. But but at its core, and to what you've just identified, the issue is, is there someone or something there that is just so absolutely fucking idiotic that the people sitting on the other side of the television and Marcus can recognize it, but the poor saps who can't figure out how to make their business work can't do anything about it, right? Yeah. And, and generally the answer is yes. And so that for me is the interesting part of the show. Actually, there are a couple things that are interesting about it to me. So one is I've been a business consultant for about the last two years. It blows my mind you can even stand watching this. Uh, so I didn't. Before I was a business consultant, I rather enjoyed the show. Yeah. What I've, learned, what I've learned in the last two years is that I don't enjoy the show. And maybe it's like when you go home, you don't want to take your work home. Not yeah. that this is work. It's, it's, again, reality television on CNBC. Um, but it just – so I have worked with people who have failing businesses and they don't want their businesses to fail. And none of them are doing anything idiotic or stupid, right? It's just like maybe it's not a great business or maybe some shit happened to them that they can't help. External market forces. Yeah, yeah, or external market forces. Um, and so the notion then that all businesses are as clean as get rid of the village idiot and your idiot <laughs> your village won't have an idiot anymore is is absurd. Like I have spent you know I worked with a couple of businesses for almost two full years and we were still kind of uncovering, oh you're doing this kind of odd and that's making a significant impact 6 to 8 months down the road yeah. because a lot of these things are lagging indicators at best. So the notion that you could condense the intricacies of a failing business and many of these like larger businesses into a a one-hour show 
or B, into like the three or four days that he spends with those people, largely which is enough time to figure out if there's any any sort of margin that he's going to win on there. Uh, and if there's one uh, village idiot that he can identify and demonize quickly, I don't know, man. I mean, the whole thing is just kind of a shit show. And yet I find myself sitting there and going like, yep, he's not wrong. Yeah. He is not, that guy is an idiot. <laughs> and the thing that makes me want to believe in the stupidity is that sometimes they show the business and it's like – Either they did a lot of pre-production work rearranging that store yeah. or rearranging that person to make them look idiotic or like that idiotic stuff. So the kitchen one we watched yesterday, that store looked like a nightmare. It was just knives. Just <laughs> knives everywhere in the tightest aisles I've ever seen. Like I got nervous. It's like watch- a fire hazard. Yeah, I got mm-hmm. nervous watching mm-hmm. it on the screen. Just knives everywhere and like <laughs> aisles that I could not fit through at my skinniest point, which is a decade behind me. Uh, so... I'm like, why would you? Why would you set anything up like that? Or the the fashion designer who had never been inside one of her stores. She just worked at the warehouse, uh, and whose brothers refused to be on camera and left whenever the guy showed up, even though they owned two thirds of the business, which was my absolute favorite. Yeah, we're gonna suck this place dry. We don't want you to fix that. I'm going to go hit the bar. <laughs> yeah, they've which, got a lot of money. Yeah, mean, yeah, which was priceless. Uh, so, like, I do buy it sometimes, but I have to know, I'm always torn between how much of this is fabrication. Yeah. So what's weird is, like, for as much of it as, for as much of it is just absolute shit, right? Like, come mm-hmm. on, man, that's not real. There are some things that, at least in, in my line of work, that, that stuck out that I was like, yeah, no, that's absolutely what happens. It's just a little more dramatic for television. He's so, also got sound business advice. Yeah. Yeah, it's like sound business advice. So, like, for example, anywhere that I went over the last two years, and I probably worked with 25-ish companies over the last two years, there was always at least one villain, right? We usually talk about him as the toxic employee, like the person who's, like, actively working against the interests of the organization. Yeah, that person does exist and the difference is he finds them in five minutes and then they play up the dramatic effect of that person and yeah. usually by either by way of goading or probably just like bribing yeah. and editing they make that person out to be even worse and they usually put them in a scenario where that person will melt down or like just lose their fucking mind on screen yeah so then you really see they're the villain because only a villain would lose their and you do mind. that you do that too right that's like that's part of your job that's all i did for the last two yeah. years yes. i set up the appropriate sound and lighting so that when this person <laughs> lost their shit you know it's a long game for me i could throw the lights on and record all of it. It was like that Michael Douglas movie, The Game. Yeah. It's just like you just fabricated everything in their lives. That's How many skylights did you have people fall through? 19. I had wow. 19. I worked with 25 companies. The other six, just it was a no-go. We had to, we kind of had to abort the mission. <laughs> no skylights. Right. No skylights. They were all underground. It was very difficult. To storage spaces. Um, so some of this stuff does happen more than you think. And I have gone into businesses where they were obviously doing stupid fucking shit. And the easy solve was quit doing stupid fucking shit. I mean, so, so that, those things happen, right? Um, I don't like, though, that across every episode, and regardless of particularity or market or nuance, the answer is always stop doing stupid shit. I mean, that's <laughs> it. At the end of the day, he doesn't even really offer you a lot of proactive business. No, well, I mean, no, he does. Like, he remodels stores and, like, says go into different markets or things like that. Yeah, but like the remodel stores go into different markets. Like that stuff is all, I mean, there's math around how much going into a new market will get you on a return. And it's usually not a sustainable return, but it's if you go into a new market or if you relaunch your packaging, you're going to gain a 10% bump for X amount of time. So some of that stuff is like if you get to have a refreshed storefront, right, that'll gain you anywhere from X percent to X percent if you relaunch it appropriately. But the long-term sustainable strategy there is you need an entirely new marketing initiative. You've got to change your focus. You probably have to change some stuff on the back. End. Those things largely get left behind to the slap a coat of paint on it, flip the store, uh, ask those people not to act like fucking, you know, Appalachian uh, murderers for 48 <laughs> hours, uh, and then and quit eating their cannibalized cousins, <laughs> and, and then maybe they'll make money for a few minutes. So here's what I'm really curious about, and I don't know, Ross, producer Ross seems to be a much bigger fan of the show than I. Again. Uh, right. Well, yeah, I mean, because you never turn it off CNBC, obviously. Yeah, no, I'm addicted. So I know at one point, like Bar Rescue, for example, I, I listened to The Nerdist, and John Taffer was on, and I think he said he had a 70 to 75% success rate on bars that he'd rescued. They'd remained open over the course of a year. Whereas, like, Kitchen Nightmares, which is the Gordon Ramsay show. It's like, like a near 100% failure. Rate. Yeah, like a near 100, like 85. Yeah, but, I mean, restaurants are entirely separate category. Opening a restaurant is like gambling with your eyes closed yeah I mean, absolutely <laughs> yeah true. to it's be clear i've gone to bars to... that should be closed right like, we, yeah. we go to one for ethical regular. reasons yeah absolutely not to mention as a business perspective so if you're you... not laundering money through a drug operation with a restaurant you're not making money <laughs> <laughs> like it's i don't see how else you can do it so yeah. producer ross do you know the success rate on this show 
Uh, I do not. There is a fan website for it where they keep tabs on that stuff. I don't know. I think he, he, he it's more positive than not. Uh, but it's interesting because I look back through the first page and you can see like the success success, uh, success stories are like there'd be like one or two comments on there. Mm-hmm. But there's some episodes where he doesn't invest at all, right? Because the, there's such shit shows, right. and those are the ones I think are real because he's like, <laughs> I'm not putting any money in this, right? Because you still you're still employing the woman who's suing you for sexual harassment, yeah. And those ones will get like a hundred comments, and like the people who are involved in the store will like comment, and be like, my husband is a good man he that woman is a criminal like that's happened and so um so that at least the ones where he doesn't invest i think are authentic so you just want the biggest shit show possible yeah but i don't i think he i think it's more successful than not um i i on his wikipedia or something there is something about his full stats and like i can look that up between segments but i'd be uh, interested to know yeah if it's I don't more know. like a bachelor marriage success rate or more like a bar <laughs> rescue success rate yeah um, but anyway the profit's interesting uh even if it's fabricated right and it's on uh, cnbc probably every night probably all the time cause yeah because someone thing on CNBC. we've heard well there's shark tank too is that on CNBC now? They well, they show it on oh, CNBC. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, you know. So there's syndicated Shark Tank in this show, and that's everything I know that's on right. CNBC. Maybe CNBC needs the profit. <laughs> ah, I'm gonna get another beer. Uh, oh, Spencer. What are you drinking? My, what a what a lead-in! I uh, am drinking a Stiegel Radler. All right, so let me do, let me tell you what the can says: beer with fruit soda, malt beverage specialty. Mm. So it's light. It's got a soda-like quality. Sounds organic. Heavy on the grapefruit. Gonna be honest. Don't love grapefruit. Gonna be honest. Uh, like three point two percent alcohol by weight, though. So you know. It's like Boone's Farm. My God. Mm. This is like water. This is like water when I don't want to drink water. <laughs> um, yeah, and so in terms of ratings, this is probably a three for me. It's a Super Mario RPG. Um, I would probably drink a lot of these sitting somewhere comfortably. I'm not going to go out of my way to find it, but I'm not mad that I'm drinking it. So this is a three. Um, hey, what are we talking about? So as you proposed it to me, uh, we're going to have armchair director time. hey And we're going to talk about the top three friendship test films. So movies whose people taste and reaction to you use to gauge whether you can like them or not. Right. So if if I've just met you for the first time, yes. in theory, I should be able to ask you about one or all three of these films. And they would act as gates mm-hmm. to our long-term ability to talk to one another. And to be clear, if I'm already friends with someone and they have the wrong reaction to a film, I'm not done so. It's just that I'm getting older and the investment of my time is like there's more demand for it. And so if you take a bad reaction to the film and you're in the acquaintance zone, I'm, I'm getting out of that. I'm getting out of that friendship. I don't fight. know that I believe you on that. Like, I think if I said that I had a strong aversion to the life aquatic and went so far as to mock the life aquatic. You have said you, that. And I've been angered by it. Right. And we're still doing this podcast. Strong aversion is probably a hard... Nah, it's probably what Dear Prophet, okay. I hate my podcast host, right. but he owns 50% of the business. Please help. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Please mm-hmm. help. Okay. You want to start? Uh, sure. So uh, the way I arranged my list is that it is not three separate friendships tests. It is a single friendship test with three separate portions. Of Man. It. Uh, it's like Ready Player One shit. So, the initial gauntlet, Mm -hmm. the initial gauntlet I'm going to make you run, all right, is the Royal Tenenbaums. There it is. I was waiting for Wes Anderson, and I guess I just, I I aimed wrong on which one it was. So, Wes Anderson's at the front, right, because Royal Tenenbaums is my favorite of the films. Mm -hmm. I think it's got the most heart. Uh, It's the most dear, dear to uh, Wes Anderson's central theme as failed patriarchs. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, it's well shot. Interesting film. I enjoy it. Very darkly comic. So I want to see on two levels if you pass the Wes Anderson test. If you just can't stand it because, oh, this is boring, stuff like that. You're on the Michael Bay side of things and you hate Wes Anderson. No, we're not going to be cool. Not going to happen. If you hate it because Wes Anderson, oh, it's centered, it's too mannered directing, I find it too pretentious and hips. Oh, also, now, Fred, you've gone too far in the other directions. I don't want to sit around watching Bergman films with you all goddamn day. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, yeah. If, Kenneth Bergman? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, name. no thank you. 
Uh, you you can go, you know, enjoy whatever the fuck wild you're doing over there. Yeah, wild strawberries by yourself. Yeah. Um, I will enjoy something with at least a modicum of entertainment value mm-hmm. um, and just technical mastery. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking for uh, you need to walk the walk the line on Royal Tenenbaums. It's, it's a totally balance fair. beam. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. So I hadn't really conceived of my list as a three gates all a part of the same marathon. Well, more's the pity. Yeah, yeah. No, but you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. So if I were to do that, the first gate for me then would be Young Frankenstein. So if you don't like Young Frankenstein, I think that by and large we're going to have difficulty communicating because I would say that 85 to 90 percent of the shit that comes out of my mouth is tongue in cheek, punny, or sarcastic. Which is the large swath of dialogue in that film. To be here, clear, I would throw you out if you were not into Young Frankenstein. Fair. But not because like I feel like I'd invested wrongly. I'd worry you were a pod person. Because I'm not I'm not convinced I could be friends with someone who didn't like Young Frankenstein. Just seeing them on the street. Yeah. Reasonable. Like, I think I'd I think I'd just know whether they were into it you or just not. Just go to the other side of the street. Yeah. You know, the other half of that is uh, I think Gene Wilder, uh, you know, may he rest in peace. Oh. Uh, just an American, uh, maybe an international cinematic icon. Uh, that's genius. And if you aren't willing to understand uh, and embrace genius in, in that kind of form, like maybe maybe we don't have the same kind of shit going on is what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. All right. What's number two for you? Number two for me in in phase two, right? really. Second gate. Um, you need to be able to watch the raid and enjoy it. Oh. Oh. Okay. Go so on. So if you're cool with Wes Anderson, you're not going to get too I'm above it and you're not going to be like, I don't get it. I also need you to like be able to be transcendently excited about just the most mindless murder your way up the apartment building film possible. Because again, if you can watch that film and not be on the edge of your goddamn seat for the entire time, um, I want you to be on the edge of my doorstep and moving outwards. Amen. Uh, and no, thank you. Uh, so again, I, Royal Tenenbaums, we got that initial balance beam. Right. The raid, I got to see you be able to transcend something that other people are going to call trash or mindless or whatever. And I, I don't want you to see the the ballet and the violence. Like if you don't, if you ain't into a Hong Kong action film or a Filipino action film or any kind of action film because it's you know beneath you. Right. I, nah, I ain't got time for that. So my second gate. Uh, could also be construed as an Asian action film. It's Big Trouble in Little China, um, (laughs) where there is fighting in Little China. Uh, So a couple things. I love John Carpenter. I absolutely love Kurt Russell. I think this is probably the best of both the John Carpenter and Kurt Russell films, and also the best John Carpenter film starring Kurt Russell. Uh, Really? Have you seen The Thing? Yeah. No, I've seen The Thing. Wow. And I've seen Escape from New York. Uh, of which Caleb's father had a bit part, I understand. He did. He did. For another time. I think time. that's a different segment. For another time. So here's <laughs> Movies the, your parents are in. Here, yeah. So <laughs> Or directed, I can do something. <laughs> yeah, or directed, yeah. yeah. Producer Ross is in on that. Cool, guys. Thanks for leaving me out. Um, <laughs> so here, here's what I'm looking for in Big Trouble in Little China. One, yes, I know it's absurd. Uh, can you also really embrace the absurdity and, frankly, the camp of some of that film? The thing I love most about that film is that it got made. Right. And I have no idea how to this day. Right. It's unbelievable. It's such an insane premise. Imagine the pitch meeting for that movie. I can't! Right. And then these and then these guys are going to come down. We'll call them uh, the fuck it, the three storms. Uh, and one of them is going to shoot fucking blades, and one of them is going to be lightning, and one of them is just going to be big and bulky as a motherfucker. And they're going to fight Kurt Russell while he's trying to recover his stolen semi. And we're going to have a great white hero. Don't worry, but he's going to be shitty at everything. Right, like really just terrible at everything. He will have a knife in one boot and an Uzi. He will kill people with functionally neither until the very end of the film. Exactly. Okay. So, so one, if you don't, if you really can't embrace the absurdity in the camp of that movie, again, we're kind of at odds about what film is supposed to do in some ways to me. Yeah. Two, if you can't watch Big Trouble in Little China and immediately not go find the fucking soundtrack, we don't listen to the same music is how I feel about that. And so for me, it's about really defining two elements of friendship there. All right. What's one for you? Phase three. Yeah. The last gate. Is the last gate in your mind the hardest gate or the least I've never had someone reach phase three other than Sarah. Wow. All right. Uh-huh. Babe. You must be talking about some weird <laughs> pornographic film nope. that I've not heard nope. of. Nope. Certainly not the film <laughs> about the a talking, pig. It's the talking pig. Movie. Oh, no, it yeah. is that film. Go on. <laughs> Look, Babe's going to come on screen. Mm-hmm. They're going to kill Ma, his older sheep Spoiler mentor that teases alert. him how to be a sheep pig. Sheep pig. Uh, I am going to start crying. And it's going to be ugly sobs. I can't handle it. 
crushes me every time. The emotional journey of that tiny pig just destroys me. And I think you need to acknowledge that film affects me in this way, and you need to be cool with it, or else we can't be friends. So Babe is the crucible. If you can get past Babe, and you can just like give me a solid pat on the back and understand... And not mock me forever for it, like these podcast listeners will. That's why we're not friends podcast Or your podcast listeners. co-host. Yeah, or your podcast co-host. Uh, I, I'm not going to invest the time. Yeah. So I have a lot of questions. <laughs> so I'm just going to I'm just gonna start and we'll see where we end up. Question one. Yeah. While you're sobbing, ugly sobbing at me, <laughs> if I'm in the room, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> you could quietly excuse yourself and come back in and never mention it again. Right. You could cry with me. Yeah. You could just give me a sympathy pat. Right. So that's the thing. Like, if I came over and just patted you on the shoulder, that wouldn't be weird? No. I'd be okay. Are you looking for a hug? He's handing Kleenex to you, too. Yeah, to, that's also that, acceptable. Okay, that yeah. is. Crying accessories? Yeah. All right, so two, what did Sarah do when she went through this with you? I told her I can't handle that movie and do not put it on, uh, to which she insisted on putting it on. And when I ran out of the room, into the bathroom, trying not to tear up when they killed that beautiful sheep. Yep. Uh, she understood that she'd made a mistake. Right. And she apologized. How many times in the course of your relationship have you watched Babe together? <laughs> that one time. Okay. Yeah. Well, so literally only one person has made it through the yes, third game. Yeah. I didn't say it was an easy test. You know, for what it's worth, if if the purpose of the gates is to keep people out, I might start with that one. Because <laughs> I imagine a lot of people would leave, like, just pretty quickly. Like, nope, well, what's your, what's your no, third no, no, that, far less interesting it's choice like, then? Um... It's Go like, on and proceed to underwhelm. It's like every martial arts movie. You have to have progressively tougher guys. Right. You can't start out with uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at the to- at the bottom. You, know, you need <laughs> right. to work your way up. That's true. That's true. Uh, All right. Well, so mine, uh, which has far less crying, maybe, depending on your proclivities, unless you are one of the zombies, is Shaun of the Dead. So Shaun of the Dead for me is probably peak film. I would say favorite film is Ghostbusters. And then it's some question of what Edgar Wright film really makes it into the two spot. Is it Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, or maybe even Scott Pilgrim versus the world, I think, sometimes. But it's Shaun of the Dead. And here's why I've landed on that. One, I think that the uh, greatest form of comedy is quick reference. And Shaun of the Dead is just quick reference after quick reference after quick reference. Two, it's referential to other things that are interesting to me. So I grew up watching zombie films with my mom, and so those like have a very special place in my heart. So not only am I getting the quick reference dialogue that I appreciate, I'm also getting something, some canon that speaks to me very clearly. And then finally, like it's it's just cheeky, and I hate to use that word to describe something British. It feels unfair, <laughs> uh, but it's exactly that's not your word. No, it's not my word. That's exactly what it is. Um, you know, there's a lot of like uh, incredibly uh, uncomfortable phrases used throughout the course of the film. I appreciate the buddy cop aspect of the whole thing. Um, and, and as I've mentioned before, I also think it's like quite a good romantic comedy. So for me, it's kind of the complete package of films. And if any one of those things is off-putting to you, uh, then you're off-putting to me, I guess is how I feel about that. Yeah. So not babe, far less crying. You know, uh, there's two – I can't think of three, but there are two that uh, I have that are like this. I don't think either of you have seen these two movies, though. Probably not. Yeah. Uh, Attack the Gas Station and The Seven Faces of Dr. Lau. I've seen Attack of the Gas Station, yeah. and I loved it. That's a Korean, basically, Guy Ritchie movie. God, yeah. that movie's hilarious. It's amazing. I've seen neither. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's pretty good. We'll do that sometime. Yeah. 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 One time, we just need to let producer Ross tell us all about the weird films we've not seen. Yes. There are many of those. Right. Uh, did you cry at the uh, Attack of the Gas Station? Or? No, I also didn't pick three bland comedies. Kept it and together. call it a personal friendship. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. All right. Wow. Well, okay. And on that note, uh, it's beer time. Yeah. Now that you've had a moment to wipe away the tears uh, and, and think about the, the marvel that is Babe, uh, what beer are you drinking? <sighs> Somebody didn't pass gate three. All right, anyway, I'm drinking the Springfield Brewing Company's Walnut Street Wheat Beer. Wheat Beer. Uh, it is a solid three. It's a definitely drinkable wheat beer. I'd put it with a Boulevard wheat or anything mass market appealed, uh, even though it is a local uh, from Springtown. Well, Holla. Four one seven. So this is a solid Super Mario RPG. You know, I will I say level this up. I will say this, and one way to level that beer up uh, is to drink it on tap at the Springfield Brewing Company. It is much better. It on is tap. much better on tap. So kudos to them, uh, Caleb. What are we talking about? So uh, we're going to ha- introduce a new segment because I know people 
hear us and hear about us and look at us and think, those guys have it together. They get it. They're with it. They know what they're doing. So He I'll, definitely does laundry. Yeah. We're going to have... We're going to have a segment called Living with Humans, just a general life advice segment. Yep. And so uh, I thought I'd bring this up. Uh, starting on controversy seems to be a theme of the Mix 6. Uh, so I have been together with Sarah for 10 years now uh, and not married for a day of them. <laughs> and while initially I found that very worrying, uh, I wouldn't have it any other way at this point. Uh, and yet you have been married happily for is it five years four years as of four days ago but four years we've as been four together days for 10 years as well yeah so roughly 50 well, yeah so 40 so yeah the now. same amount of time half of which you've spent married right none of which i've spent married right so uh an interesting experiment to talk about uh what even is marriage anymore if you're of the sort of millennial set that sure this, uh podcast crews yeah that's a really interesting question and we've talked about this a lot uh at a variety of bars across the springfield area and so i'm you know i'm glad we're talking about it here because it is a weird question and probably in some ways i don't know i'm guessing people of our age and around that you know 30s for example have struggled with more recently than probably even their parents or grandparents given the kind of loosening of social convention and the changing definition of what it means to be married in the first place yeah etc and so, and we're just talking about the social construction at this point. We're not even getting into the re- religious side of things. No, like that. nor no. are we getting into the day to day of actually living with our specific significant others yeah. and what that's like. Because no. I want to, for the most part, continue to do that. Yeah. So we're gonna. <laughs> it's, it's more conceptual. <clears throat> so here's what I can say about that. Having been on both sides of the fence now, the, we've been together for I think we were engaged for about a year and a half. So we were together for four or five years. No engagement. No marriage. Not that it never crossed my mind. Not that it didn't seem obvious at some point in that that span of time. But for me, the distinction became at a certain point that that concept holds weight for me. And that concept held weight, uh, you know, maybe even more specifically for Brandy, my now wife. And so it was meaningful to me and to her to be able to do that thing, to engage in that social convention Regardless of what it meant and regardless of what it said politically about whether or not you know, we thought marriage as an institution was fair or should be demarcated or not demarcated, etc. So for us, it was very literally a question of, is this something that has some meaning? And if, when we, engage, if we engage in it, is that meaning valuable? And, and, and it was. And so happy to get married. Uh, took me a little while to get off the ground to get married um, just because I had to really wrap my hands around the value of the concept. But it was never wrapping my hands around the value of the person. It was, it was very literally that interloper there, which is the word. Um, but you're on the other side of that line. And so you've just not found value in that word or in how, how the invocation of that concept might change your relationship. You think there will be no change? You think there will be a change? So the religious aspect never made a point for me. Right. Uh, or Sarah, for that matter. Um, and to be clear, Sarah and I both come from, like, marriages that have lasted into 30 plus years right so uh no divorces nothing like that um but um she was not really into the concept and i'll I'll admit that she started that sort of thing but i will say at this point that i was like oh we've been together for this long we should probably think about getting married as a result of that's what you do time when you've been here this long time and presumption and that uh, as I go on, makes less and less sense to me because things are great and they've been great and we keep on working together and there's trust, which you should have at the very beginning of a relationship, Sure, not to mention 10 years on. Right. And so at that point, I'm not sure what motivation there is to do it. And in fact, I see more often than not, present company excluded, it seems to be going great, that go wrong because... Not necessarily even because one side doesn't want to do it and the other side does, but just because following that social convincing leads you down this financial road to ruin. Yeah. Uh, it brings families together in a way that puts them on the wrong foot immediately. Uh, so you basically begin with a feud over this financial burden you have to do. And it puts a lot of pressure on a relationship that might not exist otherwise that, and that would be fine if that pressure came from, say, some real-life form of pressure, like, say, financial or health, and that would totally tolerate. But if this pressure comes from this sort of, like, mutual agreement to engage in this ritual that's going to cost us tens of thousands of dollars, uh, and, like, 
put everybody out and kind of stuff. Like maybe inviting that into your relationship, maybe that's the problem. So that's the real thing. That that what you've just described is a real thing. And Brandy and I have talked about it at length, kind of jokingly. Um, but but it's something that hits. And so what I hear you saying is you don't want to introduce into an otherwise fairly pleasant environment this unnecessary thing that, that if there's any risk, it makes it less pleasant. Why do it? Yeah. And the reality is, and, and we've talked about this, there's something about the, the, the marriage piece that says all of a sudden now I can't get out or if I do get out, it's going to be really difficult. When in reality – we were living together for a number of years. Some people refer to that as in sin. Okay, sorry. All right, um, common law yeah, wife. Yeah. Um, but but the reality was, if we broke up, then it's not like it was going to be easy. I mean, we were sharing bills, we were sharing stuff. We had, you know, the, there wasn't an easy way out before we were married. Now there's not an easy way out. Now that we are married, it's just the easy way out now. Also has to involve some third party divorce, divorce attorney and uh, you know a lot of like extrajudicial uh, financial operations that just seem really really fucking annoying. And that's the thing, like especially Sarah's friends thinks I'm like out like prowling the town and I don't want to be tied down because I'm an alley cat out right. with all the ladies. And they say that before seeing me and they realize they're ridiculous. <laughs> uh, but but. Uh, I, it's not like I'm doing that, and like I would survive having an arm lopped off with easier adjustment than like life without Sarah. Sure, at this point. right. I'm as invested as I would be if we were married. Like I'm not going to understand how to operate alone as a single person anymore. I'm in the same boat as anybody who gets divorced. But the fact of the matter is, I don't have the pressure of society telling me we have to be together. Yeah, and like that's the one thing we talked about. It's like I think it's really romantic. It's that like. I am here because I want to be here. Mm -hmm. And every day that's the case. Not because it's too hard to climb out of it. And you know what? It is functionally too hard to climb out of it. But I don't, it doesn't even make that appearance to me because at no point is anyone telling me you have to be here. Right. Like I never think of it, the, the question's never framed that way. The question's always like, well, I'm here because I love her very much and we need to be here. So what about And I think family? that's ultimately more romantic. Yeah. What about the family aspect though? Because like from our perspective, it wasn't even so much about us at some point. It was about everyone, like the people orbiting us mm-hmm. who after five years are like, when are you getting married? And so at some point, you know, that, that was or was not going to push me in any given direction probably wasn't. Uh, but it did make it feel a little more claustrophobic in the sense. Uh, do you guys get any of that stuff? Do you? Oh yeah, we get the pressure. Yeah. We get the pressure. But like that pressure is so fleeting. And here's the thing: the pressure's never marriage. The pressure's kids. Sure. The kids' pressure not going away. Right. Not going away anytime soon. Won't go away until the grave mm-hmm. for me or some parent. Mm-hmm. Um, but that marriage pressure. Once you're very clear, it's like. Look, there's this thing you want me to do, but it's very expensive and very inconvenient for most people engaged in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we don't really want to do it. Yeah. And this is about starting my family, so we're not going to do it. Right. And we're going to do everything else. Right. We're going to come visit you. We're going to involve you in everything. Literally nothing in your life is going to change except you're not going to get pictures of this one event. Right. And, like, that's – I find that even today, that's easier for most parents to accept. Like, I – the kid problem, an everyday issue with mom. She wants the grandbabies. Sure. As many as and often as possible, even though her baby boy is looking for podcasting money, and that's not a good sign that he can support a child mm-hmm. through college. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the marriage thing, once you're, like, clear about it, poof, Gone. it just disappeared for us. Wow. And I don't know if that's true of everyone, again, because I don't have the religious aspect of it. But if you don't have this sort of religious institution back behind you, I'm not sure there's a point anymore. I don't, it, it never seemed to be fleeting, but maybe that's because you didn't treat it ambiguously, right? You just made your position clear early, and it was an agreed-upon position, and so, okay, we can work with that. Maybe mine was always hedging, like, yeah, it'll happen, but. And, like, maybe the but was too ambiguous, the timeline was too undefined, that the, the, the real focus there was on, yeah, it will happen. Well, why not that? And why not now? The kid thing is another interesting question. I mean, we want to have kids. Uh, that That's not off the table for us, obviously. Um, but... While there has been, while there was more pressure, I would say there was a lot more pressure around the marriage thing than there was around the kid thing. Not that the kid thing isn't there, not that the kid thing doesn't come up, you know, when a grandbaby's coming or whatever. I don't, I don't know why I don't feel that one like I felt the other one. I don't internalize it the same way. It's like, man, whatever. Okay, it is what it is, I guess, on that one. And I'm not sure what the difference is there. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I think you're more receptive to it. 
I, I've, I've again been very upfront on my position. That's fair. In the front part, it was like, yeah. nah, I'm not, no, I'm not doing that. That's like, fair. I'm not equipped. Right. I don't want to do that. Huh. Um, and it's not like a statement for like other people. Like, I, as a teacher, I see parenting go wrong literally every day. Right. Literally every day. And I, I teach at a level in high school and college where when it goes wrong, Holy shit, does it go wrong? And it's gone so wrong for so many years, and it just terrifies me. Because, like, I have to think that, like, the majority of people aren't terrible fuck ups yeah. intentionally. I would think so. And so, like, I'm like, well, what if I'm part of that 10 or 15% where, like, I did my damnedest, and holy shit, that's what came out. Right. And I don't, I just don't even want to roll those dice. I, I, I'm, you know, the only winning move is not, not playing for me right now. And that might change one day, and I reserve the right to change that, but. Yeah, I think that might, I, I, but like, that's the thing. I've stated both cases pretty concretely. Plainly, yeah. And that's the one that stating both those cases simultaneously in the exact same way, that's the one that still draws like, huh. you're a failure as a son kind right. of stuff. Right. And so I really don't think the marriage is the thing. And I really think like, even older generations, once you get past the religious aspect, can understand it's like, hey, you both pay rent, you share everything, you're like, you're kind of married already. Right. Huh? You just didn't spend a bunch of money on a ring and a big ass ceremony that people are going to, yeah, remember when you get divorced. Because like, also, all this conversation is happening during the twenties. I'm working on my first round of divorces right now amongst my friends. Right. Like, and again, we're looking at that 60 percent ratio. Every wedding I've been in, toss a coin as to whether two or three years from now you're not helping that guy move out, sure. or he hasn't talked to you in four years and suddenly needs to sleep on your couch, or like all that kind of stuff. You know. Yeah, the data's not on our side. It is funny, I guess, now that I think about it, because we did have a killer party. And maybe that's the question. Maybe there's like some scientific relationship between really great wedding party and lasting marriage. If so, I feel fairly comfortable. Yeah. Um, but I wonder what that says about the kid thing. Although I suppose that might have something to do with the amount of alcohol consumed at wedding party. But I party. don't think it's related. That's my right. central thesis. Yeah. I don't think they're the same issue, because yeah. I'm not sure marriage is a thing anymore. Well, now that we've set you all down this incredibly optimistic path towards marriage or consummation, uh, uh, that wasn't even drunk enough yet. That wasn't even drunk enough if yet. If you want us to get worse, it's coming. Pay for the Patreon. Yeah, thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to hear our next segment, Drunk Enough, where we'll discuss performance anxiety and yes. not the kind you're thinking not about. Not the sexy kind. Happy to see you on the other side of the Patreon. If not, we'll see you next time. Thanks so much. And in the meantime, I'm going to get a new beer. <laughs>